let's get ready to study God's Word. Greetings to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time to review another Sabbath School lesson. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find a link to the current lesson study guide, additional Bible study resources, and all our previous episodes. Before we begin our study, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, and we're grateful that we can do it together in a virtual group. And we pray, Lord, that you will grant us wisdom and understanding and help us that we will connect the dots the way that you intended them to be connected. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson 10 is entitled, Satan's Final Deceptions. Satan's Final Deceptions. We're in Lesson 10 of this quarter, where our study is on the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14. And now we will read our verse, our memory verse, as well as other subsequent verses from the King James Version of the Bible. John 17.7 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Okay, this is Jesus in his prayer when he's with his disciples right after they've eaten the Last Supper. Let's turn to our introduction. It was one of those gorgeous September mornings in Chicago. As the sun rose over Lake Michigan and commuters battled traffic jams on the Kennedy and Eisenhower expressways, and children made their way to school, a chilling story began to emerge that struck fear into the hearts of Chicagoans. People were becoming tragically sick, and some were dying just a few hours after taking Tylenol capsules. On testing, each of the capsules proved to be laced with potassium cyanide, a deadly poison. A deranged individual had tampered with the medication, but to this day, we don't know who did this. As we have seen, Revelation warns us that the inhabitants of the earth will drink a deadly potion called the wine of Babylon. There are false doctrines and teachings that in the end will lead only to death. However, the world is not left without the antidote, the protection against this spiritual poison. And that is the three angels' message. messages. So in this week's lesson, we continue looking not only at Babylon's deceptions, but at Christ's plan to save us from those deceptions. Sunday's lesson, The Way That Seems Right in a Man's Eyes. In the context of the last days, Jesus uttered a powerful warning. For false Christs 
and false prophets shall arise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. That's Mark 13.22 from the King James Version. Who are the elect? He later says, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. A little scary, isn't it? When the deception in the last days will be so great that even the faithful ones will be in danger of being deceived. Read Revelation 12.9. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Who is deceived by Satan? It says the whole world. We have a couple of podcasts on, on that, which we will share in the link of this podcast. How do we understand these words? Obviously, there's a remnant that will not be deceived, but it shows that the vast majority will. The lesson continues. Obviously, God is going to have some faithful people in the last days, as he has had all through the ages. However, the wording here shows just how widespread Satan's deception really is. Now, Revelation, uh, sorry, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. What warning is prom- is presented here? It might look good, but you need better assurance than that because some of those ways lead to destruction. People are often told to follow their own conscience in order to determine for themselves what is right or wrong, good or evil, and then live accordingly. But the scripture says that we are all sinners, all corrupted, and so to trust our own sentiment is almost a guaranteed way to get it wrong and to even do wrong. A lot of evil has been perpetuated through the ages by people utterly convinced of the rightness of their cause. That is, they followed the way that seems right to them. Instead, we must immerse ourselves in the word of God, and from his word, as we surrender to the Holy Spirit, learn truth from error, right from wrong, good from evil. Left to our own devices, or even to our own senses, we can become easy prey to Satan's deceptions. Think through examples of people who had acted based on what they themselves believed was right, or even what they believed was God's will, but had done evil things. What can we learn about these tragic events? What we should learn is that the reason God gave us his word is to have a written consistently applied indication of his will for our lives. If we just wing it and guess, everybody will have their own opinion. God established writing as a way to keep things synced up from generation to generation. So we need to leverage the tools that God has given us in order to know where we stand with him and how he wants us to stand.
Monday, the old lie of immortality. Read Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14, and also Revelation 18, 2 and 23. What allusions to spiritualism do you find in these verses? Okay, Revelation 16, 13 and 14 says, And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Unclean spirits like frogs. And then in Revelation 18 verse 2, it says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Verse 23, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. These are allusions to spiritualism. Such expressions as dwelling place of demons, right? Habitation of devils, it says in the King James, and sorceries all indicate demonic activity. No wonder we've been warned that of the two great deceptions in the last days, one will be the immortality of the soul. Of course, that's so easy to see today. Even in the Christian world, the idea of the soul being immortal is all but staple Christian doctrine. Many Christians believe that, at death, the saved go off to heaven and that the lost descend into hell. How often, after the great evangelist Billy Graham died, did we hear that Billy Graham is safe now in heaven? The Bible teaches something different. And I know it's discouraging for people to hear, for many people to hear, because especially people who have had good relatives, right? When your relatives have had a fervent relationship with God, a devout relationship with God, you want to think that after a life of pain and hardship on earth, that they're now in heaven. Most people aren't going to want to hear that they're resting, awaiting the judgment, right? That, that's not as comforting to them. Uh, but that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that everyone goes to heaven right away. Because if everyone goes to heaven right away, there's not a whole lot of point in the second coming. And there's not a lot of point in the second coming where it discusses that they which are alive and remain, there would only be one group. You wouldn't have the righteous dead that come up first, and then those that are alive and remain that get caught up after. If the righteous dead go to heaven right away, then the only people that the second coming would be for would be for the people that are still sitting here, alive. But that's not how it works. And there is still um, there is still a lot of hope in the message, the way the Bible renders it. Everyone is resting. They're not in any pain. They're not in any anguish. Whatever they were suffering on earth, is at an end, 
and they are awaiting the second coming where God is going to come back to get all of his people at one time. Yes, it's true that there are a few small pockets of people in heaven that God took already. We know that Moses died and was resurrected and brought to heaven. We know that Enoch went straight. We know that Elijah went straight. We know that when Jesus arose, there were a group of other people who arose as well. Their their, um, thrones, not thrones, their graves were rent open and a multitude was brought back with him. We don't know what the size of that multitude is. We don't know what the size of that multitude is, but they went back with Christ at the second coming as first fruits. But Christ is coming back for everyone. We're not just going to get siphoned into heaven a little bit at a time. That's not the way that God plans it. right? And it doesn't have to be discouraging. No one has to look at this as though, but I thought my grandparent or my loved one was there already. That's, that's, I was going to say it's fine. Being wrong about that doesn't put your loved one in any peril. Your loved one is in a place of rest. They are unconscious of everything that is happening. They are not aware of anything is happening. They are waiting. If they are a believer in God, they're waiting for the resurrection. But they're waiting for it. Just as Lazarus had to wait for it the first time. They're waiting for the resurrection. Lazarus was dead and he didn't go anywhere. He was laid down in a sepulcher. When Jesus died, he didn't go anywhere either. He had to be resurrected. Right? That's how it works. So when the serpent comes to folks, Adam and Eve, the first time and said, ye shall not surely die, that was the foundation for a lot of error. It's the foundation for a lot of error. Now let's look at some other verses. Ecclesiastes 9.5. And we're going to look at some verses to prove our point here. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And Job 19.25-27. through 27, This is a good one. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Right? So he's saying, I know that Christ is going to come, my Redeemer is going to come, at the end time. I live here in the early time, but I know that my Redeemer is coming in the late time. So that means I know that at some point I'm going to die and my body's going to completely disintegrate. But even though this body's going to die, I'm going to be given another human body. Job understood this already. And I'm going to see him for myself later. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 17 is really good. But 16 and 17 will help us here. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's an important verse. The dead in Christ have to be here where the righteous are, where the righteous in Christ are, or the live in Christ. I'm trying to make a contrast. I'm saying the wrong words. The dead in Christ, the righteous dead 
and the righteous living. The righteous living are going to be on the earth. The righteous dead are going to be resurrected first. And then the righteous dead, the righteous living will be caught up together with them. And then we're going off with the Lord who's come back for the second coming. That's what the Bible teaches. No one is sneaking off beforehand, right? As far as we understand it, all the people who were going to get in heaven early have done so. The last time that this occurred, as far as we can tell from any record, is at the first coming. When Christ ascended, he did so at the time, right after his resurrection, he did so with the first fruits. Okay? He did so with the first fruits. That's the last time a group of people got into heaven ahead of the regular schedule. Since that time, everyone who's died has gone to sleep and is awaiting the resurrection. It's not bad news. It's all good news. Okay, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up together to meet. If they've been in heaven already, they done met the Lord. That wouldn't make any sense to say the ones that are alive will be caught up together with the ones that were resurrected to meet the Lord in the air if the first group already met the Lord. And there's no point in the resurrection if everyone who dies or automatically goes to heaven, what would there be a resurrection for? Okay. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. That they may rest their works following them talks about the fact that the things they have done in the Lord continue on even though they are now resting in the sleep of death. One of the pillars of Babylonian deception is a false understanding of death, which, centered on the idea of the immortality of the soul, prepares the way for the deceptive influence of spiritualism. If you believe that the dead, in some form, live on and might even be able to communicate with us, then what protection do you have from any of the myriad deceptions that Satan has? If someone whom you thought were your dead relative were suddenly to appear and talk to you, how easy would it be to be fooled by your senses? This has happened in the past and in the present, frankly. And certainly, as we near the very final end, it will happen again. Our only protection is to stand firmly rooted in what the Bible teaches and to cling to the biblical teaching about death as a sleep until the second coming of Christ. What examples of modern spiritualism exist in your culture today? Well, our culture has television shows and movies that emphasize spiritualism. Also books and other forms of entertainment. Tuesday. 
Babylon, the center of sun worship. Sun worship was prominent in Egypt, Assyria, Persia, and certainly Babylon. Which is interesting, right? All of the dominant powers that existed throughout the time of Israel focused on worship of the sun in one way or the other. Here's a quote from a book from 1926. In ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. It may seem surprising, but at times, Babylonian sun worship influenced the worship of God's people in the Old Testament. And we get some verses for that in Ezekiel in particular. Ezekiel 8.16 And he, this is God leading Ezekiel through places in vision, And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east. And they worshipped the sun toward the east. And we have 2 Kings 23, verse 5. It says, And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem. Them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, to the planets, and to all the host of heaven. The prophet Ezekiel a contemporary of Daniel, pictured some of God's people with their backs toward the temple of God, worshiping the sun toward the east. Instead of worshiping the creator of the sun, they worshiped the sun instead. An important thing to understand is that the way that God had structured the temple is that the entrance faced west. When you were in the the sanctuary, coming out of it, you were facing east. But going into it, you were facing west. So these people have their backs to the sanctuary. They're in the courtyard between the porch and the altar. And they're in the courtyard, but their back is to the sanctuary. And therefore, they're facing the same way that the sanctuary is facing, which means they're facing away from it. They're facing the sun toward the east. Okay, In Revelation 17, John describes a time when the principles of Babylon, including sun worship, would enter the Christian church during an age of compromise. The casual conversion of Constantine in the early part of the 4th century caused great joy in the Roman Empire. Constantine had a strong affinity for sun worship. Edward Gibbon, the renowned historian, writes, The sun was universally celebrated as the invincible guide and protector of Constantine. This is from the book, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Constantine also passed the first Sunday law. This edict stated, On the venerable day of the sun, 
let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. This was not a law enforcing Sunday observance for all of Constantine's subjects, but it did strengthen the observance of Sunday in the minds of the Roman population. It was in succeeding decades that emperors and popes continued through state decrees and church councils to establish Sunday as the singular day of worship, which it remains today as well for the majority of Christians. What a powerful example of the hard truth that just because the majority of people believe in something or practice it, that does not make it right. Okay. Sunday worship and also the state of the dead, which, not ironically, are the two hardest subjects to do in a Bible study with people. Wednesday, a call to faithfulness. The message of the second angel of Revelation 14 is, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In Revelation 17, a woman identified as spiritual Babylon, dressed in purple and scarlet, rides upon a scarlet-colored beast, passes around her wine cup, and gets the world drunk with error. Church and state unite. Falsehood prevails. Demons work out their miracles to deceive. The world catapults into its final conflict. At the same time, the people of God are maligned, ridiculed, oppressed, and persecuted. But in Christ, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, they are steadfast in their commitment. All the powers of hell and the forces of evil cannot break their loyalty to Christ. They are secure in him. He is their refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God is calling an end-time people back to faithfulness, to his word. Here is a remarkable statement by Dr. Edward T. Hiscox, the author of the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches. In 1893, he addressed a group of hundreds of Baptist ministers and shocked them as he explained how Sunday came into the Christian church. Listen to what he says in a conference in November of 1893. What a pity that Sunday comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. That's what he said. He acknowledged that the roots of Sunday worship are not to be found in Scripture. These are hard topics, and they cause a lot of friction, but if people are willing to look at them open-mindedly, searching from the scriptural references that we will provide, 
and that are provided in this study, they will see that in fact, Sunday worship is not a thing that the Bible has ever endorsed. And I mean it as in the day of corporate worship, not that you cannot have a spiritual worship on on a Sunday. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. You can't pretend that the first day is the Sabbath when in fact God has outlined what the Sabbath is. But we are supposed to worship every day. So merely having worship is not what this discussion is about. And we come to a comment on the Sabbath as found in Ezekiel 20. And one of the things the Lord says right at the end, and hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. Sabbath is an identifying mark. It's an identifying mark for the creator and it's an identifying mark for us as the creature. Thursday, grace for obedience. Hmm. The woman in scarlet and purple, riding on the scarlet-covered beast, has passed around her wine cup, and the world is drunk with Babylon's false doctrines. Speaking of the wine of Babylon, Ellen White makes this clear comment. What is that wine? Her false doctrines. She has given to the world a false Sabbath instead of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, and has repeated the falsehood that Satan first told Eve in Eden, the natural immortality of the soul. It's from Review and Herald, December 6, 1892. These erroneous teachings have deceived millions. As a result, God is giving his people still entrenched in error a final last day appeal. What is God's appeal to multitudes still in the fallen organization? Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. As we have already seen, but it is worth repeating, many of God's people are in religious organizations that have compromised biblical teachings. They do not understand the teachings of the scripture, meaning the people of God. God's loving appeal is straightforward. Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins and you receive her plagues. How does the Bible define sin? The Bible tells us that sin is the transgression of the law. Right? Breaking of the law. That's what it says in our final paragraph here at the end of Thursday. Sin is the transgression or breaking of the law. The only way anybody can obey the law is through faith in the power of the living Christ. We are weak, frail, faltering, sinful human beings. By faith, when we accept Christ, his grace atones for our past and empowers our present. He gives us grace and apostleship. That's what Romans 1.5 says. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Heaven's appeal to his people in churches that do not respect and obey the law of God is to step out by faith. 
His appeal to Adventists in Sabbath-keeping congregations is to forsake all self-centered human attempts at obedience and live godly lives by faith, which delivers us from sin's condemnation and sin's dominion. And just as Israel's faithfulness to the law would have been a powerful witness to the world, our faithfulness too can be a powerful witness to help guide people out of Babylon. Further thought. Further thought. There's a quote here from the Great Controversy. It says, Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. In the Old Testament, the spirits of the dead played a major part in Babylonian religion. The Babylonians had a strong belief in the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. They believed that death of the soul entered the spirit world. The concept of the immortal soul is foreign to the teachings of Scripture. And there's a quote here in the Jewish Encyclopedia that says, The belief that the soul continues its existence after the dissolution of the body is nowhere expressly taught in the Holy Scripture. The belief in the immortality of the soul came to the Jews from contact with Greek thought and chiefly through the philosophy of Plato, its principal exponent. Okay? And we see that there's also um, some Egyptian influence there as well. Let's look at a couple of discussion questions. Why is an understanding of the truth about death so critically important? What does it protect us from? And why is it comforting? So I spoke a little bit earlier about the comfort. I spoke about the fact that our loved ones are resting. They're not looking at us going through a bunch of pain, which wouldn't be good for them. And they're not able to communicate with us. They're not able to feel any pain for themselves. They are simply asleep waiting the resurrection. So it's good for them. It's good for them. And it's good for us. What does it protect us from? The having, what does this truth protect us from? What does knowing the truth? It protects us from being deceived. If we're deceived about spiritualism, we will be susceptible to having some powerful being pop up in your home and converse with you and convince you that such and such and such is happening. Right? Because after all, if you believe that spirits are out there, your loved ones, etc., when they show up, when they manifest to you, you're going to believe that that's what you're seeing. You're not going to believe that it is some sort of a, some sort of trickery. You're going to believe what you're seeing. And that belief may cause you to do things that are not in harmony with the will of God. Right? Once someone has gained your confidence, they can tell you anything. And you're going to believe them. Nine times out of ten, unless it's obviously different from what you've ever learned before. 
we need to avoid being deceived. Jesus said that. Let no man deceive you. He wouldn't have said it if it wasn't important. Let's look at our verse one last time. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This verse tells us that we require the truth for sanctification. We cannot be sanctified with error. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your mercy and goodness and love to us. We want to thank you for the privilege that we have to do this. And we ask you to grant unto us wisdom and understanding, grant it unto those who hear us, help us to appreciate what the truth of your word is, and help us, Lord, that we will not get caught up in error, because it will be detrimental to us. These and other mercies we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can email us at biblequestions at asbzone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. Don't forget to check out the full description of this episode at biblestudy.asbzone.com to ensure that you can access the linked resources and any related podcast episodes. This podcast is available on all the major platforms, such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. Please remember us in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word. Thank you.